Good morning, everyone. It is so, so good to be back with you all. Um, for those who don't know me, as um, Justin said, my name's Natalie, and I help lead the central service with David and Philippa. Um, and I also look after the worship ministry across all the services with my partner in crime, Peter, if you've met him before. Um, and I've been part of Christchurch London for almost 10 years now. I joined 10 years ago as a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed law student, and now I've ended up working for the church. Amen. Um, and while Central Service is now my home, Myland Service is my origin story. If you know, you know. <laughs> this is where it started. I live 20 minutes away from Coven Street, and I intend to keep it that way. They will not remove me. East till I die. If you cut me, I bleed bagels. I'm meant to be here. <laughs> um, but I just want to say to start off with like just a big thank you for everyone who supported me and encouraged me as I made the transition from the Myland service to help lead at Central. It's really, really difficult to leave such an incredible community as this. Um, and you all have my heart so much, but you've made it so easy because you've just been praying for me and supporting me in all of it. So thank you. Thank you so much. I love you guys a lot. Um, so today we're continuing our study of Luke's gospel, where Jesus has sailed across the lake of Galilee towards Gerasenes, which was a predominantly Gentile region. And in this small village, we're told that Jesus essentially performs an exorcism on a man possessed by many demons. Yes, you didn't think you'd be talking about demon possession at 11 past 11, but here we go. Um, now, right from the start, I appreciate that um, this story can seem quite strange and disturbing, especially if you've never heard it before. Um, but we know that Luke wrote his gospel using eyewitness accounts. And so I've managed, after much research, to find one of these eyewitness accounts for you all. And hopefully this will give us some insight into this story. If you could play the, the next clip. Girl, I almost died yesterday. Yes. Let me tell you. So you know that one crazy dude that's always by the grass? Him. Well, this other dude came up and was like, get out the man. And the man was like, I don't want to go. Send me in the pigs. And I was like, the pigs? So I left. And I'm so glad I did because when I turned around, the whole herd jumped off the cliff. Girl, they had jumped off the whole cliff. <laughs> As you can imagine, Sharice Porker will need a lot of therapy after witnessing such traumatic events. <laughs> All jokes aside, though, it is one of those stories in Luke that can easily have us stumped. I mean, we can look at Jesus' teachings, and sure, they may challenge us, but on an intellectual level, we can probably reason with them. We have Jesus' miracles, and while everyone loves a miracle, right? Who doesn't want to see the blind receive their sight? Who doesn't want to see the lame walk again? And Jesus caring for the poor while snubbing the rich and self-righteous, that can probably make a lot of sense too. But demons, impure spirits, exorcisms, that all sounds like a lot. However, no matter how unrelatable this story might seem upon first glance, Luke has clearly included it in his gospel for a reason. 
Right at the start of this gospel, we see Luke tell his friend Theophilus exactly why he is writing. He says, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke wants his readers to have certainty about who Jesus is. And I want to put forward this morning that this story is included because Luke wants us to have certainty about Jesus's authority over the spiritual realm and evil forces. But before we get into the passage further, I think it's important to just quickly outline what the Bible actually teaches us about spiritual forces. And a quick disclaimer from the start, I've gleaned a lot of knowledge from some great Bible teachers whose works I regularly quote. So anything really good is coming from them, I assure you. Um, But I'm just going to pray before we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can be gathered here as your church to hear your word. And Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit will fill me as I share your word with us today. May you speak from me and may you prepare our hearts that we might receive what you have for us. Amen. So, biblical spirituality 101. (laughs) Firstly, the Bible teaches us that there is both a material and a spiritual realm. In his book, Unseen Realities, R.C. Sproul writes this. There is an uncompromised supernaturalism at the heart of the Christian worldview. And we must not let the world's skepticism with regard to these things affect our belief systems. We must trust and affirm that there is much more to reality than meets the eye. So we have the material, what we can see, but we also have the spiritual or the supernatural, and that is the things unseen. We worship God even though we can't see him with the naked eye. Because indeed, Jesus confirmed in John 4, 24, that God is spirit and that those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And when he taught his disciples to pray, they asked for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we see examples in scripture where man has been given a glimpse of the spiritual realm. For example, you have Jacob's vision in the wilderness of this stairway to heaven. Isaiah's vision of the Lord in the temple worshipped by angels. And not to mention the entire book of Revelation. The Bible leaves us, therefore, with no doubt that there is a spiritual world that exists alongside a physical one. Secondly, we have a defined spiritual adversary. There is a spiritual enemy of God who's often referred to in scripture as Satan or the devil. And earlier on in Luke's gospel, we read of Jesus being tempted by that same devil, also referred to as the accuser in the wilderness. And as children of God, the devil is our enemy as well. Ephesians 6.12 tells us that for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now note what the Apostle Paul tells us here. He says that our struggle is not only against rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world, 
but it's also against spiritual forces of evil. And I want to draw your attention to this because one objection that some people might have towards this idea of the devil and evil spiritual forces is that it over-spiritualizes the idea of evil. I mean, surely evil is just about people making broken choices as a result of being broken themselves. Why are we talking about some demonic figure behind them all? And in his book, Encounters of Jesus, Tim Keller disputes this argument thoroughly. And he does it so well that I basically just included a long excerpt. So bear with me, but I think it's so good. He says this, if it's true that there are demonic forces out there, then the evil in the world cannot be reduced simply to human choices. Don't get me wrong. Human beings all by themselves are capable of great sin. And of course, those sinful human choices are a significant component of the matrix of evil in the world. But when I moved to a small town in the South in the 1970s, I could see the tail end of the society and the institutions that kept African-Americans excluded from any economic or political power. If you talk to those individuals in those institutions, while many of them were definitely bigots and even more of them were merely clueless, you realize that most of the individuals were not especially evil in themselves. Yet the systems they comprised were certainly evil. Remember that Hannah Arendt saw this when she covered the trial of the Nazi death camp leader, Adolf Eichmann, for the New Yorker, and spoke there of the banality of evil. The system was far more evil and destructive than the thousands of fairly ordinary individuals who made it up. There's some kind of force out there that magnifies, complicates, and perpetuates the bad things that are happening in the social and psychological systems of the world. Christianity says there's more evil than you can account for in the world just from the cumulative effect of wrong individual choices. And you can attribute some of that evil to actual demonic forces. Thirdly, the devil's mission is to deceive us and to draw us away from God's truth. In John 8:44, Jesus says, and he's speaking to the Pharisees here, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. John Mark Comer explains this further in his book, Live No Lies, which is a great book, by the way. The devil's goal is first to isolate us, then implant in our minds deceitful desires that play to, oh, sorry, deceitful ideas that play to our disordered desires which we feel comfortable with because they are normalized by the status quo of our society. Specifically, he lies about who God is, who we are, and what the good life is, with an aim to undermine our trust in God's love and wisdom. 
So the devil's main weaponry in his arsenal are lies and deceit. And we see this right at the beginning in Genesis with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The serpent, he deceives Eve into who God is. God is not good. He's not looking for good things for you. In fact, he's withholding good things from you because he doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to have the knowledge of good and evil because then you would be like God and you wouldn't need him anymore. But it's all lies. If only Eve in that moment realized that she was a child of God, she had everything she could possibly need. And the devil continues to use the same lies throughout the Bible story and with us today. Now, I appreciate that was very much a whistle-stop tour of the theology of the spiritual world. (laughs) But I think it now sets us up nicely to approach this passage. So let's read it again. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want from me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, They ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people of how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Now, there are two key things that we learn about Jesus in this passage. His power over spiritual forces and his willingness to deliver us from evil. So firstly, Jesus shows his power and authority over the demons that have possessed this man. 
the man who had repeatedly broken the chains used to restrain him, is now falling at the feet of Jesus. And the demons within him are no match against Jesus and his authority over them. Notice how they know exactly who Jesus is. Jesus, son of the most high God. Jesus was barely revealing to anyone at this time that he was the Messiah. And yet the demons are fully aware of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And secondly, they have to beg Jesus for permission to go into a herd of pigs. Now, some scholars have the audacity to criticize Jesus for choosing to cast demons into the pigs and thus destroying someone's livelihood, as if they can tell God what to do with his own creation. However, Warren Wiersbe suggests in his commentary of this passage that Jesus might have chosen to do this deliberately so that there was no doubt that he delivered the man from the evil spirits tormenting him. And that's why we see this passage end with the man going into the town and telling everyone that Jesus, not a sorcerer, not a wooden idol or a pagan ritual, but Jesus was the one who delivered him from the forces of evil. Secondly, we are struck by Jesus's compassion and willingness to deliver this man. I mean, look at what he's lived through. He had no clothes on, no place to call home. He simply wandered around in the tombs away from civilization. He was bound with chains and watched over like an animal. And when that didn't work, he was driven by these demons into solitary places and completely isolated. He was simply left to his own devices whilst the rest of the town went on with their lives. Jesus didn't have to bother himself with this man. He could have ignored him as he stepped ashore. And yet, Jesus chooses to save him. He chooses to use his power and authority to rescue him. It's one thing to believe in a powerful God, but it's another thing to believe in a powerful God who is willing to rescue us. About 12 to 13 years ago, wow, that made me sound really old, didn't it? Around 12 to 13 years ago, when I was 10, um, <laughs> I watched a Christian film called Furious Love. And the concept behind this film was a question. How far does, love, does God's love really go? Will it go to the depths of the occult and the satanic church, for example? Will it meet with the transgender sex workers in underground Bangkok? And in every scenario that is presented, the answer is a resounding yes. There is no depth that God's love and compassion cannot reach. There is no darkness that his light cannot overcome. And no matter how far you believe your spiritual bondage and oppression has gone, God's love and power can go even further. 
Therefore, what is our response to this passage? How should what we find in it shape our lives as disciples? Well, first, we need to acknowledge that we face a spiritual battle. In his work, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and an unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. We need to strike a balance between these two states. We can often feel so capable, so self-sufficient, that when difficulties arise, our first instinct is, I can fix this, or I can control this, I can make this right. And sure, we might pray, perhaps, but doesn't it often end up being a last resort? And when things don't change immediately, we just shrug our shoulders and say, well, maybe it is what it is. But we mustn't be blind to the fact that there, are, there can be spiritual elements to our circumstances as well, because we are in a spiritual battle. From my own personal story, I know there are times where I have led worship at worship nights and God has really moved and, you know, people are really enjoying his presence. And then the next day, suddenly, I start to feel really low and I start to feel really anxious and afraid. And I used to think, well, you know, maybe I'm just tired. You know, it's been a long night last night. Maybe that's what it is. But now I'm starting to realize more and more that that is a spiritual attack from the enemy because he wants to destroy and demean what, he, what God has accomplished the night before. It's not always that things can be explained just by circumstances. We need to be quick to pray. We need to be quick to seek God in these things as well because we are in a spiritual battle. On the other hand, Philosophies like the ever-increasing New Age movement are examples of this excessive and unhealthy interest in spirituality and in particular spiritual occultism and evil. For if it's not the power of God that we're looking to, then surely it's the power of evil disguised as good. And to be honest, even Christians can fall folly to over-spiritualizing situations And you're giving Satan more credit than he deserves. Because how comes the spirit of lateness always affects you on a Sunday morning, but never when you're trying to go to work? (laughs) No, the right approach is to be aware of our fight against evil that we face and to be quick to pray and to ask for God's intervention, knowing that his power and grace alone is what we require. Secondly, we must stay alert to Satan's attempts to draw us away from God's truth. Quoting John Mark Comer again, he says, The danger for most of us is not that we feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in the devil. It's that we just ignore him entirely and go about our lives oblivious to his daily assault on our souls. 
we as Christians need to be more mindful of the things that we consume, what we put into our minds and our hearts, what are forming us, and the potential lies that Satan might be planting there. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, so Natalie is now going to tell us all the music artists that secretly belong to the Illuminati or the truth behind hip-hop part five. Or she's going to tell us all that films that have the subliminal messages about Satan in the credits. But I'm not going to do that, so don't worry. I'm not going there. And I definitely grew up listening to sermons like that, like being in youth groups where that rhetoric was discussed. And I don't think it's helpful at all. One, because I feel like it creates this legalistic culture where we're now like, who, who's not so demonic? Okay, that person can pass, but this person's super demonic, so I'm not going to follow them. And I think we're missing the point when we do that. And two, because actually I think it hugely underestimates what is meant by Satan's deceit. Because I'm not saying that the devil doesn't work in overt ways like that. But if we're being honest, it's more of the covert ways that we often miss. It's the subtle lies about what is valuable and what is good and what is trustworthy in this world that we so often just passively consume through our art and our culture and social media and the opinions of others. But that's why we need to follow the instructions of 1 Peter 5.8 where it says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Listen, I'm not trying to be here trying to be a square. I'm not trying to be here trying to be uncool. But you know what? I'd rather be uncool and be for Jesus and be protected in his spirit than to try and be cool and just let things contaminate my mind and cause me to forget who God is and who I am as a child of God. So I'm not here to tell you the yeses and the noes. I'm just here to say, think about what is forming you. Think about what you consume, what you allow to come into your spirit. And finally, most importantly of all, and this is where we're going to go on a high, um, we must not be afraid of Satan. For God is greater and has overcome him. I'm going to say that again. We must not be afraid of Satan. For God is greater and has overcome him. Tim Keller writes that Christianity is not dualistic. The demonic forces are not the equal of God. The devil is a fallen angel leading fallen angels. And God is infinitely more powerful. And in the very end, not only can God overcome them all, but he certainly will. And this is the electrifying promise and hope that blows through all the pages of the Bible. Um, my friend Barbara, who used to come to uh, my land service, she likes to tell people about this story when we were going out in Bethnal Green and we were like evangelizing to people. And there was a man that we came across in the park. And so I began to speak to him to say, you know, just want to let you know that God loves you, that he has a plan for your life. It's written in his word. And to which he just answered simply, well, I'm Satan. <laughs> and my response in that moment, I just simply went, am I supposed to be scared? <laughs> 
<laughs> and Barbara goes on, oh my goodness, like you should have seen it. Natalie was just full of the spirit. She looked that guy in the eye and she was like, I'm supposed to be scared. Like it was amazing. Well, to be honest, I think I was just being my sassy self. I don't really think I thought about it that deeply, but I'll let her, you know, say that if that's what she wants to say. But, <laughs> but the point still remains the same. Like we should acknowledge Satan's existence, but why are we going around being afraid of him? Because God can and will overcome him. In fact, he's already overcome him through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And all of us who put our faith in Jesus, we have the same spirit of God within us. What would our lives look like if we actually believed that the way the demons trembled at Jesus' feet is the same way the demons tremble at our feet when we have the spirit of Christ within us. Because that is the truth. I wonder if the band could come back up. That was a very anxious moment there to call the band back up. <laughs> now, I'm aware that for most, if not all of us, we've probably never experienced demon possession or we've never seen someone, you know, get exercised or anything like that. But in a spiritual sense, I can still relate to this man because there are things that I've experienced in life that have made me feel isolated from God and from community, that have made me feel chained and powerless, that have made me feel as though I'm not within my right mind. And actually someone emailed me um, this morning to say, I've been praying for you this morning for your sermon and they said like look at the way the man is described when he is released from the demons it says that he is sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind and I think that's beautiful we all want to be sitting at the feet of Jesus as his disciple clothed in grace and righteousness and in our right minds in the freedom of who God is but maybe there are things in our lives that have kept us spiritually bound. Maybe you're sitting here for the first time and you're thinking about a circumstance or something that happened in your past that has really held you back, that you just can't seem to shake off. And now you're thinking, actually, you know what? I never thought about it, but could it be spiritual? Could it be something that I need to cry out to God for deliverance from because it doesn't have to be it is what it is you don't have to live with that shame you don't have to live with that regret you don't have to live with that abuse or that trauma the spirit of God wants to free you today he wants to deliver you from that today I want to assert again that all of those things they are lies from the devil the enemy of God and the truth is that God can and he will set you free. So we're going to respond in worship, in a song of worship. And then I'm going to come back up. I'm just going to invite the Holy Spirit to minister to us today. I'm going to invite him to just fill our hearts and to just release us from whatever might be holding us. And I'd really love to pray for people and we've got some amazing guys here um, who would love to pray with you. There, there's no shame. There's no, like, trying to save face. Like, 
We all need prayer, to be honest. We can all come to the front of a prayer, myself included. But I just want to make it a safe space. Like, you don't need to go out of those doors still carrying that same thing you came in with. We're here. We love you. We want to pray for you. Because I believe that God wants to release you from that today. So let's just stand. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you love us. And we thank you that you have both the power, the authority, and the compassion to deliver us from evil. So we're going to respond and worship to you now, Lord. And I just ask that we prepare our hearts. Give us the boldness and courage to come forward for prayer and to be delivered from whatever it is holding us back. In Jesus' name, amen.